Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. This week, with millions of ballots left to count, dozens of races in California, including for L.A. mayor, congressional and legislative seats, are still up in the air, leaving a lot of anxious candidates out there. And our guest today is one one of of them, them. (laughs) (laughs) Riverside Democrat, uh, who is giving a Republican incumbent congressman, Ken Calvert, a run for his money with thousands of votes more to count down there. That's right. Will Rollins is a former federal prosecutor who helped build cases against the January 6th rioters and is being gay helped activate LGBTQ voters in the newly drawn district that includes Palm Springs. We'll talk with him about his first run for office and the possibility of flipping a red seat blue in the Inland Empire. But first, Marisa, we did have an election uh, this week, and we do have some results, actually. We do, and we should say we're recording this around 3 p.m. on Thursday. Um, I actually just got done with a panel with one of the foremost experts on ballot data, and he he estimates there's still 5 million ballots out there. So it's And they come in very unevenly. Yes. Two uh, counties uh, count differently and right. more slowly than others. And some districts overlap multiple counties, so it can be really hard to gauge exactly. But one thing that I think sort of broad brushstrokes we do expect is that because of a lot of the messaging from the former president on down, a lot of more conservative voters did vote in person on Election Day um, and that likely a lot of the ballots coming in now will skew more Democratic. But there's always exceptions to that. There's and, always exceptions. You know, and, you know, some races are a little... Uh, are going to be harder to close the gap for Democrats. I mean, if you look, it's interesting. We've, you know, for weeks we've been talking about the possibility of uh, Democrats picking up some seats. Uh, you know, the race you covered, the the uh, Valadeo race against Rudy Salas in the uh, Central Valley. That one is uh, is still quite a few, you know, thousand votes uh, Valadeo ahead in that one. Also, uh, Mike Garcia down in L.A. seems to be well ahead of Christy Smith in their third rematch, right. uh, or I guess technically second rematch, the third time they faced each other. Um, so those uh, those aren't looking good for Democrats. But in Young Kim and Michelle Steele in the uh, O.C. Uh, L.A. area, uh, also the Republicans doing well there. So 
We'll be talking with Will uh, Rollins in a minute. He, he is uh, about even with Ken Calvert. But all in all, I think, although it's interesting because we thought maybe California would be the place that determined, you know, who controlled the House. But actually, um, I- at least in terms of picking up seats here, it doesn't look like uh, too many are going to be going into the Democratic column. No, and it's really fascinating because I think you just see how, you know, on a knife's edge this country is in so many ways and how evenly split in a lot of these places um, voters are. You know, I do think that it's it's funny because there's a lot of sort of prognosticators going, well, there wasn't a red tsunami or wave, but actually a lot of the polling was pretty close, right? Coming into Election Day, um, it showed not just in California, but nationally, a lot of these races just being so tight. And I do think that, you know, when, when you get to that point, it matters Everything matters. Everything, Everything every matters. single vote. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, two people uh, who have a lot riding on this, um, one maybe more than other than the other, Kevin McCarthy, the Bakersfield Republican, who is hoping uh, that uh, his party will take control of the House, Nancy Pelosi. He's actually declared that they will. So He's yeah. declared that they will, <laughs> uh, although they had a lot of champagne ready to uncork on election night right. that is still on ice. Um, but there's already talk that the Freedom Caucus is thinking of uh, withholding their support for him. And if it's a very narrow margin, which it looks like it will be, He's going to need pretty much every, you know, he can't let too many of those members stray. Right. Uh, so and on he, the other side, it is looking pretty good for Democrats to hold on to the Senate. I think at this point it's still up in the air, but that is... Georgia on my mind. Yeah, well, and I mean, the, yeah. although Dems may not need Georgia if they can lock down uh, Nevada Arizona and Arizona. Nevada. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, I'm sure they'd like to have a, a one vote Oh, yeah, uh, that, that wouldn't hurt, it w- but it wouldn't do away with that filibuster problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I do think that uh, we will have a lot to look out for with both uh the political future of Kevin McCarthy. And then, of course, what happens with Nancy Pelosi? She promised four years ago that this would be, you know, she would step down after this election as speaker. Um, You know, obviously, there's a lot more pressure for her to do so. So if Republicans have the House, and I don't think she wants to be in the minority. Um, But, you know, there's it's it's interesting when you hear sort of what how the caucus is talking about this publicly in the weeks leading up to this election. Um, I don't think we know exactly her timing or what will happen. Will she step down entirely? That'll, of course, trigger an election here in San Francisco. And we know that her daughter is uh, interested in running for that seat. So a lot of of family discussions, I think, to happen. Um, And uh, let's see, we also, of course, uh, Gavin Newsom's clout, I think, was shown on Election Day with Prop 30 in particular, which had been leading in the polls. This is the uh, tax on the wealthy to fund climate goals and fight wildfires and uh, more resilience uh, against wildfires. That one seems to be going down right now. It's uh, 59 percent no, 41 percent yes. And it's going to be interesting to see if there's any fallout going down down the road between uh, Newsom and some of the constituencies like environmentalists who are really for that. Yeah, I kind of doubt there will be because he, should, he, he gets a is pass. in such a strong political place right now. And you can see it with that. Um, you know, and I do think that that was sort of an interesting needle to thread. I was uh, just talking to some the woman who has the Chamber of Commerce and saying, you know, they actually had to work Yes, Newsom coming on absolutely helped sort of galvanize the Democrats and maybe more uh, swing voters they needed uh, to to defeat that measure. But they also had to be careful because Republicans were like, wait a second, Newsom's against this? Why should I vote against it? (laughs) It's confusing. Well, when people are confused, they vote no. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And then uh, statewide, not uh, many surprises, if any, uh, on the statewide uh, constitutional offices. Of course, Newsom cruised to reelection. We're still keeping an eye on the controller's race. Um, Are we? 
Well, can, I don't uh, think so. You know, we're, I mean, I think uh, I think the candidates probably are. <laughs> uh, Malia Cohen ahead, uh, not as much as some of the other Democrats running statewide, but uh, by all indications, she will be just fine when uh, when those ballots. It's just hard are in California with that, our next year name statewide. It is. It is still uh, kind of the scarlet letter. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by Democrat Will Rollins. He's hoping to knock off incumbent Congressman Ken Calvert down in Riverside County. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're happy to have with us this week a political newcomer who took on 30-year incumbent Republican Ken Calvert down in Riverside County, or as they call it down there, the Inland Empire. After jumping out to an early lead, uh, he and Calvert are really close. A few thousand votes, uh, ballots still to count, so we don't know what the outcome is. Will Rollins, uh, I'm sure you're you're waiting and refreshing, and uh, in, yeah, the me- in the meantime, like? <laughs> in the meantime, welcome to Political Breakdown. Yeah, how are you? How are you spending your days right now? Your hours? Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, mainly trying to catch five minute naps in between um, scrolling on my phone, but that's uh, that's how it's going right now for me. Yeah, what's the like? Is your screen average report up like three thousand <laughs> percent? It's it's too it's too depressing for me to look at, but um, I'm feeling really good about actually where we are because, you know, we had a big lead on election night, and if what the Riverside County Registrar has told us, um, which is all election day in-person voting has been counted, then for us to be even with Ken Calvert is an incredible position for us um, as we head into the phase where they'll start counting those mail-in ballots. Um, So feeling great about that. How do you maintain an even keel? Uh, you know, during uh, days like this. I mean, some of these races take, you know, weeks. There's still 35 days left to certify the election. So who knows? I mean, bourbon helps. um, uh, (laughs) I like this guy. He's honest. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the truth is, you know, it's now up to the voters. And so I've done everything I can to make my case and make my argument. And I think we had a really unique message in this campaign where we talked about some reforms that really should apply across party lines, banning members of Congress from trading stocks, 
getting rid of folks who are using our tax dollars to line their own pockets, um, lowering costs and taxes on working families instead of hedge fund managers, things like that. I, I'm proud of the campaign that we ran and standing up for women and women's rights and the LGBTQ community. And I think that that coalition and being able to get you know Republicans and independents to come out and endorse me publicly was huge in a purple district like this one. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, obviously it's not a surprise that a lot of these races are taking a long time to count. Is that something that you not only sort of prepared yourself for, but we're talking about with your campaign staff and even volunteers or maybe, you know, the community when you were out there campaigning? I mean, we definitely knew it was going to be close. No, no question about it. I think what has really encouraged me is that a lot of the punditry around a red wave. And, you know, people were telling me I I hadn't run for political office ever before and trying to take on the longest serving Republican in the House. There were people who said that I had no shot at this. And I think that we've already seen from the returns just how wrong those predictions were. And, you know, we have no doubt that this is going to take a few more days at least to figure out the outcome. But we're in such an incredible position Again, thanks to really that broad coalition that we built. And um, waiting can be hard, but as I've said, you know, the past couple of days to supporters, democracy is worth it. And this is part of the process. And as slow as it is, um, we, we need to respect it and really give a lot of gratitude to the election workers who are taking so much time and energy and really working around the clock to try and get us the results quickly because they know our communities are definitely waiting for them. Yeah. And we do want to come back, circle back and talk a little bit more about the campaign. But we always like to go into people's bios and where they came from. I know you were born in Torrance, California, the southwestern part of L.A. County. Uh, Tell us about your family growing up down there. Yeah, I I was born and raised in the South Bay of of L.A. County, Um, had a family of Republicans and Democrats uh, and spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house in Whittier, actually. And they were lifelong Republicans um, who came back to Southern California after meeting the Coast Guard during World War II, started a small business that still operates today, making parts for U.S. fighter jets and commercial aircraft, and learned a lot about what it's like to own a small business and to be in a household where um, you've got people at Thanksgiving who are voting for Donald Trump in one election and voting for Joe Biden um, in the same election and around the same table. And that kind of taught me about how to disagree and and love your family at the same time in a way that I think is constructive. And so that's been helpful for me um, in this experience, certainly in a 50-50 seat and kind of always wanted to work in national security. So when I was a junior in high school, I uh, watched the North Tower collapse on 9-11, thought about enlisting in the U.S. military, but didn't do it because I was a closeted gay kid and was scared of being outed um, and hadn't told a soul, but knew I wanted to work in counterterrorism. So eventually um, made it to Dartmouth, took Arabic, thought about joining the CIA, really sucked at Arabic. That was not going to be my <laughs> my path, but uh, didn't, didn't give up, you know, made it to um, Columbia Law School and clerked for a couple of federal judges afterwards and then got hired to join the Justice Department in 2016 and really loved being a part of the National Security Division there and working with the FBI to help protect this country from a lot of threats that we face, whether it's from Russia, China, Iran, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. But, you know, I was hired under the Obama administration and over the last several years saw a huge rise in the threats from domestic 
extremism, which yeah. is well, what wait, got me, me into the race. Yeah. Well, I want to get there. But before we get there, I want to go back a little bit to your parents. Your mom, I think, was a public defender. Um, <laughs> very different path, right, than going into the military or, or becoming a prosecutor. Tell us about her job. And like, was it something she talked about at home? And, uh, you know, what what kind of clients was she defending? Yeah, I mean, she had a lot of different jobs as an attorney and and she worked on really tough cases. And I think growing up with a mom who worked as a public defender, you really learn how to respect the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's for sure. And you learn how to appreciate just how fortunate we are to be in the United States, where if the police search you without a warrant, if you are um, your constitutional rights are violated. There's a remedy for that in court. And, and I learned that from a really young age. And my dad, who was a journalist, spent his career at a lot of different newspapers, um, also taught me just how incredibly fortunate we are to have the First Amendment in the country. And, and that was a great, they are a great set of parents. And my dad passed in um, 2020, but, you know, just taught me so much about how fortunate we are to be in the United States. And they, I wouldn't have ever thought, I think, about running without having people like them as, as role models to teach me that the country's worth fighting for. Well, as a kid, did you have to plead the fifth much? Or were you one of these best little boys in the <laughs> yeah, world? Could you invoke the fourth in your room? Like, uh... I, weirdly, they did not respect my Fifth Amendment rights in my, <laughs> my household. But I, I tried to invoke those a lot. But a lot of time, my facial expressions would just give me away. So, <laughs> What's the worst thing you did as a kid? Because you seem like a Boy Scout. Oh, no. I, I definitely, I mean, I Aside got, from the bourbon. Uh, well, that's it right there. I, you know, New Year's Eve party. Um, I think I was a, a senior in high school, had a can of beer, um, 18. So that, there was a minor in possession ticket right there. You're not allowed to drink <laughs> under 21. <laughs> but that's that's totally off the record, right? Right, right. right. We're not yeah. going to put that out there. It's okay. I think uh, I might have gotten most of my senior Might get class some votes out of that, though. In trouble at, <laughs> at our senior ditch day at my house. Yeah, that's a whole other. So, okay. So you go into the Justice Department, but this is 2016. Did it change? change once Trump got elected? Did your job change? I mean, I think we were lucky in the Central District of California to have U.S. attorneys who, across party lines, really cared about the mission of the department and mm -hmm. cared about enforcing the law and didn't play politics with law enforcement. And I candidly don't think that that was the case with the attorneys general that led the department under Donald Trump. Um, but I do think that the U.S. attorneys did a phenomenal job of focusing on just enforcing the law because so much of that job is really just nonpartisan. It's about protecting our communities. It's about going after violent gun crime. It's about counterterrorism. And that was one of my favorite things about the job is that, you know, it just doesn't it didn't matter what political party you belong to. It was the mission of serving the United States, uh, keeping the country safe and respecting our, our constitutional rights and and having an enormous amount of power and responsibility to do that. And um, it, it's a privilege to work in that department and, and really enjoyed my experience there. Where were you on January 6, 2021? And, and what was your what was your take initially? Well, we we were on um, rotations because, you know, we had just wanted to make sure, of course, that we were protecting our communities, working with the FBI to monitor any threats. And um, I, like a lot of people, initially heard about what had happened at the Capitol from the news um, and saw on TV as the mob 
watched it ha- ha- watched it unfold live like so many of us did that day and i think the images that really stand out to me were guns drawn on the floor of the u.s house uh, because that was an apocalyptic type image to me and it had a profound impact on i think the entire trajectory of the rest of my life since then which it, it, it caused me to think about complaining less about politics and actually doing something about it and eventually uh, drove me to quit and uh, challenge Ken Calvert. Before that, though, were you involved in some of the prosecutions related to the insurrection? Yeah, we we had a small role in the central district uh, out here. I mean, Washington, D.C., you know, credit to those prosecutors and agents who are doing 99 percent of the work. But Mm -hmm. there were Americans from all over the country who flew back to attack the Capitol, many of whom were in Southern California, I mean, some of whom were in Ashley Babbitt, who was killed there. Yeah, that's right. And and um, many people in this congressional district, actually, there were a couple dozen um, in Southern California overall. And one of the people I helped prosecute was uh, Gina Bisignano, who was a Beverly Hills salon owner. Um, she stood on the steps of the U.S. Capitol with a bullhorn calling for angry patriots to bring in their gas masks and weapons and then stood in the hallway as a Capitol police officer was crushed in a door by her fellow rioters uh, before she ultimately made it inside the Capitol. Um, And, you know, watching and and seeing your fellow Americans um, become radicalized to the point that they are convinced that they need to invade the U.S. Capitol for the first time since the War of 1812 is a profound experience and it, you know, moved, moved me to eventually enter politics. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest today is Will Rollins, the Democrat who took on 15-term incumbent Ken Calvert for a congressional seat in Riverside County. Still a lot of ballots to count. The two are neck and neck right now. Did you decide to run after uh, the redistricting, because it made that district, as you said, almost 50-50 Republican-Democrat. It had skewed much more Republican. Uh, and then they added Palm Springs. They dropped, I think, Temecula and Murrieta, the more conservative parts of the district. Was Did you did you wait for that redistricting? To, and, and how did you come to the conclusion that, hey, maybe I should do this? So, no, I, I didn't wait, actually. I um, my, And when I, my partner and I originally had this conversation, um, I mean, I was thinking about I I did run in a Trump plus seven district when I launched in October of 2021. We were living in Canyon Lake, which is still in the congressional district, but one of the most Republican cities in California. And um, when I was there, it was a a plus seven Trump district. And I set my expectations very realistically. I I knew it was going to be an enormous uphill climb, but felt like it was the right thing to do and that I would never regret stepping up at this moment of unparalleled crisis for our democracy. And so I was prepared for a tough race, to say the least. But then in January, after I had launched, we got the truth is just enormously lucky with redistricting. And the the 41st turned into a district where Democrats now have a registration advantage by a few thousand votes overall. And Palm Springs, um, Palm Desert, Rancho Mirage, La Quinta, all of which voted for Joe Biden in 2020, even La Quinta narrowly, um, they were drawn into Calvert's old district. And suddenly he had a 50-50 split 
right. congressional race. But you also, as you kind of alluded to, have some pockets of that Riverside County district that are still deeply conservative, relatively rural. I'm curious, like how you thought about approaching those types of voters, those you know types of communities as, you know, a gay man who is also a former federal prosecutor. Like, how, how are you talking about yourself in and does it differ from community to community? I mean, I probably have a uh, diluted level of, of uh, an ability to think that I can reach people, you know? I mean, and <laughs> I, I think I, that I, actually <laughs> sums up most politicians. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think you need a little of that. But but part of it comes from my faith in my own family and friends of being able to love one another and still loving America. And, and I, I believe that people who voted for Donald Trump love America. I, I believe people who voted for Joe Biden love America. I think that that commonality and uh, the agreement that polarization is the enemy itself, polarization itself, um, that is what I think made me confident that I could develop a message that would work with even really conservative people who might not agree with me on every single issue, but who don't want to see America divided and who want a new generation of leaders who are going to come up with ideas to fix what what I think all of us agree is a broken information system. Um, and the question just becomes, even even if we may disagree on who's to blame for that, people want it to be fixed. And if we can focus on talking about solving it, I see a path to progress for Republicans and Democrats and compromise again. As you said, you got lucky when the 41st was redrawn to include Palm Springs, which has an entire city council that is LGBTQ. Um, did, did, how do you think being gay, did, did it matter at all? Uh, obviously, it did, I would say, in Palm Springs. It helped you mo- mobilize people. But overall, I mean, did, did it come up at all in, in town hall events or anything you did with voters? I mean, I think at the end of the day, people want to vote for whoever is going to deliver for them and their family and who has integrity, somebody who has integrity. I think that mattered more than anything else. But I will say that I think being gay teaches you a lot about empathy because you grow up um, and in my case, able to cover in a lot of instances, meaning you could hear what people would say about gay people in front of you without knowing that you were gay. And it teaches you what it's like to have a government that tells you there's something defective about who you are if you want to serve in the U.S. military when I was 17, 18 years old, for example, and the impact that that has psychologically on young people's ability to grow and thrive and believe in themselves. And I think that there's something very American about pushing back against some of the injustices that have been perpetrated on people in the United States over our centuries because we have faith that we can become a better country. We can become a better and more perfect union. And um, I think that that message resonates across party lines. And I think that, you know, standing up for the LGBTQ community is something that even a lot of Republicans in my own family have come so far on. And I think that people see that treating people equally is good for our economy. It's good for our national security. And running against somebody who I think very clearly did not have those same values was a powerful contrast in this race. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, your opponent, Ken Calvert, has, I guess we could say, evolved in his uh, LGBTQ <laughs> politics. Um, but, you know, we interviewed uh, somebody he ran against who's in Congress, uh, Mark Takano, uh, what, a year or two ago. And he actually outed Takano in their race years ago. I just, I, I wonder for you, it is such a different time. Have you ever talked to someone like Representative Takano about that and just like how different it must be for somebody of his generation comparatively? Yes. And I mean, I owe him and people like him a huge debt of gratitude for their courage because running in the early 90s, I mean, people who are running in the 80s, people like Harvey Milk, I mean, he, there's only 11 members of Congress who are LGBTQ right now. I mean, and we've only had one from California, one openly gay man from California until Robert Garcia won this cycle. Um, so it's I mean, those guys are incredible trailblazers. And it's it's been a real privilege getting to know Congressman Takano during this process. And I just have, I think, respecting and what, what we have inherited and people like me have inherited from people like Congressman Takano and others who came before him to fight for making a candidacy like this possible, making it possible for me to even show up at public events and feel comfortable with my partner and feel... Um, like we can accomplish anything, that is thanks to people like Mark. Yeah, and actually, I think a couple uh, openly LGBT people were elected governor, uh, one in Massachusetts and I, I think also Oregon. Uh, but we're, we're short on time, but I want—I know you're focused on winning and you're going to be watching very carefully. But, you know, have you thought about the future? Uh, you know, what, if you don't win, uh, would, you, would you run again? I mean, are, do you feel like this experience left you wanting more? I mean, in some ways, yes. Um, and, and it's it's a hard job. And I think we need to get money out of politics so, so that normal people can do it. Um, I used to be normal. There was a time. Um, I, and I think <laughs> you have raised you just, a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, I'm very, very grateful to for the people who've been generous to the campaign. But as I've told a lot of them, too, that is the worst part of our politics. And I think we need to attract more people who don't need to spend so much time fundraising in order to have leadership who actually represent working families, people who want to maybe take, a, a, can't afford to take a, a year off of their jobs, for example, or six months or whatever it is, and not have to spend every waking second raising money to try to get elected. And so I, that is a, a reform that I think so many people are committed to. And no matter what happens in this race, I can promise you that for the rest of my life, I will be trying to work on that part of our political system because it absolutely needs to be fixed. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Will Rollins, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be watching the vote count just like you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Danny Bringer. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. You can check out our ongoing election coverage and updated vote counts at kqed.org slash elections. For now, I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at mlagos. I'm Scott Schaefer. For more election analysis, you can also subscribe to our weekly Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.